Many of you may know uh, my daughter, Anna, who is 19. And um, as I was thinking about this morning, I remembered a story uh, from when she was, oh, two and a half, uh, three years old. And uh, she was getting ready for bed, brushing her teeth, as we had taught her to do before bedtime. And she's in the bathroom, and my wife, Nancy, walked in on her. And Nancy, as mothers kind of have this, this sixth sense, they, they typically know when they walk in on a child who has just done something wrong. Uh, and, and the fact that the sides of Anna's hair and her chin were dripping wet, they were a good clue that Anna had obviously been drinking, stinking the drink of water before bedtime. Now you have to understand with young kids, drinking water before bedtime, and a lot of it, doesn't always work out well. So when our kids were growing up, you know, there was kind of, okay, an hour before bedtime, kind of cut off most of the liquid intake, maybe a little drink before bedtime, that's about it. And um, it was pretty obvious that Anna had, uh, had gone past the allowable drinking of water. And, and, and Nancy said to her, Anna, what did you do? You have guilt all over your face. And Anna responded, well, I was trying to wash the guilt off my face. But the water went in my mouth, and I accidentally swallowed it. And I knew at that moment we were in for a challenge over the next several years. Have you ever been busted like that? Caught red-handed, no excuse, no explanation, no way out. You're just caught red-handed. Well, in our scripture passage for this morning, we have just such a situation. But it's much bigger and much more serious than a two-and-a-half, three-year-old girl who is sneaking a drink of water before bedtime. In John 8, we have a woman who's caught in a very compromising position. And she's brought to Jesus by the Pharisees and the Jewish religious leaders. And it's in this passage that we find a question that we're going to be looking at today. In verse 10, Jesus asks, where are they? Has no one condemned you? In other translation, Jesus puts it this way. Where are your accusers? Where are your accusers? You know. Sometimes others make accusations against us, right? Sometimes they're justifiable and valid. Sometimes they're not. But we all have the experience of being accused. Maybe by a classmate or a friend, a parent, a sibling, a co-worker, a teammate, a spouse, a stranger. Jesus asked, where are your accusers? Now, there are a few things to draw out here. First, it's pretty clear this woman is guilty. Uh, there's no way around it, no if, ands, or buts. She's caught in the act of adultery. There were no questions about that. She doesn't deny it, doesn't protest it. And according to Jewish law, to protect against false accusation, there had to be two witnesses to the wrongdoing. Both witnesses had to be there at the same time to verify, and in the case of sexual sin, they had to see the parties involved in the act. That's what appears to be happening here as we read through, through this passage. It says that the teachers of the law and the Pharisees bring this woman before them. And they say, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Now, what do you say? And it says that they were using this question to, to try to trap Jesus in order to have a basis to accuse him. So they, their, their main point isn't necessarily accuse the woman. They're using her accusation against her to make an accusation against Jesus. So what's going on here? Now, the interesting thing here is that the man involved is nowhere to be found. He's not dragged before Jesus, which points to possibly a setup, that she'd been set up. 
to set up Jesus. And, I mean, the odds are slim that two witnesses would be there at the same time and catch her in the act. But regardless of whether it was a trap or not, they're using the woman to lay a trap for Jesus. And the trap is just is this. They figured that Jesus would either say, yes, go ahead and stone her. If he said that, he would lose favor with the people who were following him and attracted to him because of his love and his justice and his mercy and his kindness towards those, especially on the outside of society. A bonus in this scenario would be that he'd be in trouble with the Romans for ordering execution without their approval. On the other hand, if Jesus said, no, don't stone her, then they figured they'd get him in that case, too, that they could rightly accuse him of not upholding the law of Moses. Either way, they thought the trap has been set. He can't get out of this. In the situation, they're just using the, this person, setting her up, using her, and leveling incriminating accusations. You know, we've got a whole industry in this country, a very lucrative industry that, is, that revolves around and thrives on this sort of stuff, right? The tabloids you see in the supermarkets when you check out, uh, entertainment shows, cable, the internet, even increasingly network television, all love to dig up dirt, set traps, and use people to earn a buck to embarrass or discredit a person or a group or, or, or individual. Accusations especially are cast around celebrities and public figures, sometimes true, sometimes not. Regardless, society as a general tends to accuse first and ask questions later. On a, on a personal level, the same dynamic can play itself out. When we do something wrong, or on occasion, even when we don't do something wrong, we can be accused, slandered, or cast aside. Unfortunately, part of human nature is we can tend to believe the worst in somebody instead of hope for the best. So, in answer to the question, who are accusers? Sometimes it's other people. But another response to this is it's always Satan. Satan's name means accuser, literally. He's the champion of accusation. He originated, he, he perfected it. He uses accusation to incriminate and to tear down and destroy men, women, and children who are created in God's image, whom God loves. In the book of Job, we see an example of this where Satan comes before God and he accuses Job. He basically tells God that Job is faithful to him because, because only because he's not encountered any hardship. He's been blessed. He's been blessed financially. He's been blessed with respect. He's been blessed with children. And so he accuses Job of being fickle and having a weak, weak faith, and he challenges God to test him. Well, in our case, how does Satan like to accuse us? Well, he plants seeds of doubt in our minds about God's goodness, or he plants despair in our mind when we screw up. He tells us lies like, you screwed up big time, there's no way God can forgive you. Or you're hopeless, you'll never break that addiction, that pattern, that bad habit that you're stuck in. It has power over you, you're a slave to it, just give up. How many times have you done that? You're a loser. You're beyond redemption. Why don't you just give up and accept who you are? Why fight it? And through the use of these sorts of accusations, Satan attempts to convince us that we are beyond hope of redemption. We're beyond the possibility of a loving, gracious relationship with God. So Satan always is about accusation. But sometimes we're the ones who accuse ourselves. We can tend to 
believe the accusations of others and Satan and begin to add to them. We misconstrue something somebody says to us and we think we're inferior. Or somebody says something that hurts and we think, I'm, you know, whether it's uh, I, I'm stupid or I'm ugly or I'm not going to amount to anything, whatever it might be, we can tend to sometimes pile on and accuse ourselves in, in, in self-crimination and condemnation and, and discouragement. Now, you'll notice on this list of accusers that Jesus' name is conspicuously absent. Jesus, the Bible tells us, did not come to condemn. He did not come to judge us. He came to save us. John 3.17 says, these are Jesus' words, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So let's pick up our scripture again in John 8, this time verse 9. At this time, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first. It's kind of interesting the older ones go away first. Maybe it's because sometimes when you live longer, you realize you don't have it all together. I don't know. Until only Jesus was left with a woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now go, go now and leave your life of sin. Now, notice that Jesus doesn't start with, so did you do it? Did you do it? Why did you do it? He doesn't say, don't you know that's a terrible thing, a sin, to sleep with another man's husband? What were you thinking, you you wicked woman? Jesus instead tells her that he doesn't condemn her. Now, certainly, if anybody has the right to judge her in this situation, he does, because after all, Jesus is and was without sin. But he doesn't. Instead, he offers hope. He offers the possibility of redemption. He offers grace. Now, in light of Jesus' response to her sin, and I'd like to say our sin as well, what do we do? How do we respond? As theologian Francis Schaeffer put it, how then should we live in light of this truth? Well, It's important when we, like this woman in John 8, when we're caught in our sin, it is vital to know how to answer the question, what do we do now? And there are three truths I'd like you to remember. The first is remember that Jesus Christ offers relationship, redemption, restoration, not retribution. Another way of putting it is that Jesus is seeking humility and repentance, not humiliation, not condemnation. And back to this woman caught in adultery. She's, she's possibly set up, but she's certainly used and she's accused. She's caught red-handed. And when all is said and done, she is responsible for her actions. And she stands before Jesus, silently speaking only when spoken to, with no excuse, no rationale for her sin. Isn't that the position we all find ourselves in when we stand before a holy and perfect and just God? But regardless of our past, Regardless of why we sin, ultimately we are responsible for our own actions. And our own actions, in many ways, incriminate us before a just God. In standing in front of Jesus, there is, we, we cannot take the Fifth Amendment. We know we're guilty. We feel the shame. And yet, does Jesus offer punishment? Does he render a judgment on the spot? No, he offers her grace on a silver platter. He offers her restoration. He asks for her humility, not her humiliation. 
You know, I could say it a hundred ways, a hundred different times, because it can be hard for us to grasp in relation to ourselves and sometimes others, but Jesus came to love and to heal and to restore and to redeem and to save, not to shame, not to hurt, not to condemn. Our second truth is to remember that Jesus expects us to show mercy as we ourselves have received mercy. You know, it's necessary for us to interject this here because we can quickly move from being the accused to the accusers. We can very easily move from being the woman caught in adultery and sin to being the Pharisees. Look at John 8 again, this time verse 6. They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Now, we don't know exactly what Jesus was writing on the ground. It doesn't tell us. Some people have speculated about that. You know, I'd like to think that maybe he was writing some scripture, maybe the Ten Commandments. Or maybe he was writing the first and second greatest commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. That was his response to another question that was intended to be a trap. When somebody asked, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus said, these are the commandments. Love God with everything you have. Love your neighbor as yourself. Either way, as the men saw what Jesus was writing, as they heard his words, their hypocrisy and their sin convicted them. They dropped their stones and they walked away. Jesus also said this, perhaps he was writing this in Luke 6, 37 and 38. Do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now we often focus on this last part of this verse, give and it will be given to you. And we apply it to the area of stewardship and, and, and giving, and charitable giving. And that's a good application. And that fits. But it's also clear to me from the context that what Jesus is referring to primarily in this situation is, is mercy and forgiveness. Because right after these verses are Jesus' words here. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? We are not to judge or condemn but we are rather to give mercy. C.S. Lewis said that when he first studied the Apostles' Creed, he wondered why it had to be stated that, that we as Christians believe in, in the forgiveness of sins. He said, he thought, isn't that, a, isn't that a given? Isn't that what it means to be a Christian, is to believe in the forgiveness of sins? Why is it in the Apostles' Creed? And he came to the conclusion that it was because it's hard for us to receive and especially to give forgiveness and mercy. He comments, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable in others because God has forgiven the inexcusable in us. If we truly grasp the depth of the mercy and forgiveness and love that we've been shown by God, it will change how we live our lives and how we treat others. Period. Finally, the third thing I'd like you to remember is that Jesus gives us the power to live for him. He forgives us, but then he sends us on our way to live a life that's different. When we encounter divine forgiveness, when we receive mercy, 
when we are bought by Jesus Christ, by the blood he shed on the cross for our sins, we are given the power to live as a new person. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, The old is gone, the new has come. We are a new creation in Jesus Christ. And that power is rooted in the grace, the totally unmerited gift of forgiveness of our sins. And we're given the Holy Spirit. We're given God's word. We're given God's people. And we are redeemed and bought back from evil and sin. And we are set free, sent on our way to live for God. Now, we have no idea what the woman in John 8 did with the rest of her life after Jesus set her free. We just, we just don't know. I'd like to think that she lived a totally different life, that she followed Jesus' admonition to go and sin no more, a life marked by commitment to living for him, but the scripture doesn't tell us. The scripture does tell us about a man named Saul who became a man named Paul. Who, created, who committed atrocities against the church, who persecuted the, the work and the mission of Jesus Christ, but had an encounter with the living, living risen Christ on the road to Damascus. And, and his life was changed and marked differently from that point forward. And, and that's the beauty and the mystery of God's love for us in Christ in this whole situation. When we are caught in our sin, standing in shame in his presence, Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. He says, go, leave your life of sin. Go and sin no more. And he gives us the power and the ability to go with us to be a different person, to make different choices, to have a different heart and an attitude and a mind towards others. Where are your accusers? Jesus asked. Others sometimes accuse us. Sometimes we accuse ourselves. Satan always accuses us. But Jesus Christ does not. Our standing in Christ is secure. Romans 8.1 says, Therefore there is no condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation for those who have accepted Christ, who have asked him to be their Lord and Savior, who are following him and desire to be his disciple. The Apostle Paul knew what it meant to be saved, to be changed, to be transformed. He knew what it meant to to feel shame and condemnation because of his actions and his past sins. We encounter Christ, and he passes these words on to us. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus says, I offer you relationship. I offer you mercy, therefore show mercy. I offer you the power to live a different life. If you will only trust in me, go, he says. I go and sin no more. I do not condemn you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word of truth. We thank you for the example of your son, Jesus Christ, the perfect, sinless son of God who, who rightly could condemn all of us, but did not come to condemn, but came to, to save and to offer forgiveness and grace to all who would repent, to all who would follow him, who all come to him humbly and ask for that. Lord, we, we pray as your people that um, we would be people who live lives that are different. That when we fall short of God's standard, as we all do at times, that we would come to him in repentance, but we would not allow others, ourselves, or Satan to condemn ourselves, to cast accusations, to pull us down, but to, to hear Jesus' words, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. We thank you, Father. We offer ourselves to you in Jesus' powerful in precious name.